Welcome to Great Minds with Lost and Found, the podcast that connects people and reimagines systems to improve mental health for youth and young adults. I'm your host, Joel Kaskinen. Lost and Found is a comprehensive nonprofit organization that aims to do more to eliminate suicide for youth and young adults in the United States. Now that you know who we are and what we're all about, let's get to the show. Welcome back to Great Minds with Lost and Found, the podcast where we reimagine systems and connect people all to improve mental health in our communities. I'm your host, Joel Kaskinen. I'm sitting across from Cherokee McAlpine, a fellow South Dakotan, and we are recording live today in Brookings, South Dakota at South Dakota State University in the American Indian Student Center. So first, we want to just say thank you to them for allowing this space to have a live podcast recording. So Cherokee, without further Deal. If you would just introduce yourself, kind of how you got connected to Lost and Found and to mental health um, work, and then we'll just jump jump into the conversation. Um, well, I'm Cherokee. Um, I'm 22. I'm 23 next week, actually. Oh, happy early birthday! <laughs> Thanks. Um, I started my i I really like to advocate for foster care change and mental health. Um, I started it when I was actually a teenager. Um, I wasn't able to learn to drive right away when I was a teenager and they kind of sparked my like anger of like the systems, how broken they are and want the like desire to change things. And so then I started my advocacy journey and then, um, I went to, a like, I've gone to several different things, um, where I've spoken for my, my story. And, uh, recently I went to drawing a blank on what it's called. That's okay. (laughs) (laughs) Um, The, um, it's for like the residential programs. I can't remember what it's called. Like a conference? It's a conference, but I can't remember what the title is all of a sudden. But um, I went there and I shared my story and I connected with a lot of different people. And then once I connected, I wrote down all their address, email addresses and phone numbers. And like, I remember people were like, she's going to get your number. (laughs) And so then I connected with people afterwards and I was like, it was great to meet you. And if there's anything that I can ever do um, to help. And then that's how I ended up being here because I just kind of reached out to as many resources as I possibly could saying, I want to share my story and share what I can do. So you got connected to Lost and Found through networking at a conference. Yep. Okay. Well, that's amazing. I always love to find out how people know about us because we are a relatively small organization, even though we've been around for quite a while. So I'm always curious kind of like where people got connected and what their stories are in terms of working in the mental health field or volunteering and advocating. So, um, so it sounds like you want to change systems, which is all about that's what this podcast is all about. Mm -hmm. So I want to go back to something that you said about the foster care systems. Um, you have some personal experience with that and you shared that you have some anger that that's kind of what stemmed your advocacy work. So can you talk me through maybe some gaps that you see in that system that you have tried to address as an advocate? Um, My biggest one is learning to drive right now. Um, I'm working with an individual on trying to figure out ways that we can um, help kids learn to drive. Oftentimes in the system, it's like a, a reward and punishment system for learning to drive. For me, it was a liability issue. I was with Abbott House, and so as a kid, um, I've been in and out of the foster care system since I was three years old. 
And so with learning to drive, my mentor that I had at the time had to sign a waiver saying that she would pay all costs out of pocket if I crashed her oh, car. Wow. And I remember being eternally grateful and I, I still am grateful to her for like <laughs> um, signing that waiver and saying, yep, I'll pay out of pocket. I won't sue Abbott House, like that kind of stuff. And I, that's how I got learning to drive. But a lot of kids don't get that opportunity. Kind of just is a luck of the draw, depending on what foster home you're in. And yeah. so that's currently my focus. Um, but there's much broken about the system, separation of siblings, that kind of thing. Um, not being able to see family. I know I had a court order that I had to see my siblings once a month, every month. Um, and I only got to see them like two or three times a year. It kind of just depended on like... Um, resources and like people who are available to drive that kind of thing um and then foster parents um is a high need right now and you know you either get the foster parents that are in it for the money which i hate to say or you get the parents who are incredible and like um, are amazing i know i was blessed with two amazing sets of foster parents who have been amazing for my health and like my success and i wouldn't be where i am without them and it's but, you know, you've got the the not so great ones or the ones that are very like they don't treat their kids equally, that kind of thing. Like, well, you're the foster kids and I have my real kids, that yeah. kind of thing. And so there's a lot of gaps and like a lot of stigma, too, with the system. And I think that's my biggest goal is kind of taking away that stigma, kind of sharing my story, helping people understand a little bit better, like w what the system is like and how they can help. That's amazing. Like I. Simply, first off, I can't even imagine going through the foster care system as a child and picking up on those things that you've witnessed in order to determine and to see that there are needs and there mm -hmm. are gaps that need to be filled and need to be changed. Absolutely. And now as a young adult, like it's cool to see that because of your experience, because of your impact, you're like, let's go do it. Yeah. Um, so for maybe our listeners who don't know much about the foster care system, um, maybe share, you, you just said that foster parents are a need. How would someone get involved with that? How would someone be, you know, signed up or tested or whatever the process is to get involved with working in the foster care world? Um, I know oftentimes your local DSS office or your local social services office of whatever kind you can go in there and get resources on how to become foster parents. Um, there's a lot of classes you have to take, so it's not exactly an easy process, <laughs> but I think it's a worthy process. Um, you kind of, and foster parenting is not easy. I cannot imagine being a foster parent, especially with the things that I did as a child. <laughs> I was not exactly easy and um, I was a spitfire. And yeah. so I, you know, I think about that and I, I'm grateful for the people that were in my life that have been in the foster care system for me. Um, and you got to remember the small victories, I think yeah. is the biggest thing that I would have to say is if you go into foster parenting or foster care in any way, like celebrate those small victories instead of the big ones. Like your kid might be a spitfire still, but at least he called you mom or something, yeah. you know, that kind of thing. That's cute. And actually a really good way of kind of reframing things. Mm -hmm. So that way you, you can stay positive and yeah, remember absolutely. those small wins, because like you said, it's, it's probably really tough. It's a tough yes. job. I mean, being a parent in general is a tough job. <laughs> I can't say from experience, I'm not a parent, but again, like I put my parents, you know, like through a lot because <laughs> I was a terrible child. And if you were a spitfire too, like, yeah. you know, it's, it's gotta be tough, especially mm -hmm. as a foster parent. So 
That's interesting. Yeah, I I know I'm actually three and a half months pregnant and I can't imagine like being a parent. I'm not prepared. (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, if my kid's anything like me, we're going to go rounds. Like I, oh God, I was like, if I have a kid like me, I just, we're we're not going to do so hot. (laughs) Well, praying and manifesting that this child is wonderful, but also you're fully prepared to handle it. I know that you'll be great. (laughs) Congratulations, by the way. Thank you. Yeah, of course. Um, So kind of share with me a little bit of uh, your experience um, working with youth, you said that you now volunteer in that world, or, or are you working full time in this world? I work full time at Summit Oaks. Okay, you um, are full time at Summit Okay, yep. so um, for those of our listeners who don't know what Summit Oaks is, will you just explain that to you? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I've worked. I th- I'm coming up on a th- it'll be three years in March that I've worked in residential programs. I worked at Abbott House for two and a half years myself. Kind of came back to the same program that helped me grow up. Uh, but recently I moved to Sioux Falls to be closer to my brother who's autistic. So then I got another residential treatment program job. Um, basically residential treatment helps kids and youth um, that have been through trauma of some kind um, or are struggling with different things in their life. Um, it's an incredible program. And I, I use the same mantra that I, you know, that I just said earlier with like foster parenting that you got to celebrate the small victories. Like residential tr- programs are not easy to work in it's a huge need. So if you ever, you know, feel you want to work with kids, you know, it's a great opportunity, you know, but you got to have, you know, have a heart of gold, but also like armor of steel because it's, they can get to you, you know, like, and it's, and sometimes I remember there's been a few times like, um, the kids will be struggling with something that I personally have gone through. And then that's really hard too. So you got to be prepared to like work through your own trauma and your own issues and like be prepared to like, not, because it's not helpful if you like, I can relate to you. Like, <laughs> It's not helpful to the kids. Um, unfortunately, you know, you, you always, I always kind of wish I could be like, I can relate to you and I know what you're going through, but that's not in the moment they need to focus on themselves and like mm. that, you know, that kind of stuff. And so it's, it's a beautiful opportunity and, and kids are funny. Like <laughs> they're great. And I, I can't imagine doing anything better. And I, I know yesterday, actually, for example, we have a kid who is lower functioning and he, was able to start doing things he hasn't been doing before and like identifying different things in his life and coping skills, feelings, that kind of thing. And I was highly impressed and I I bragged about him. (laughs) I was bragging to him, the supervisor. I was like, you have no idea he did all this today. And like, so cool. And like, you got to celebrate those small wins. Like, yeah, he's not where we want him to be, but at least he's working, you know, Mm. on what he wants to do and he's making progress. And, you know, even if they have a bad day, you got to find those positives. Like at least they accepted my answer quicker than they normally do or something. (laughs) Yeah. Wow. That's got to be really rewarding. I mean, like I think of the rewards that I get working in the mental health field and working in suicide prevention, but that must be a totally different kind of reward, but still like so, so impactful. It's it's cool. It's, it's, I think my favorite part is seeing the progress and like them, them in the end compared to when I saw them in the beginning, like that difference is the most incredible thing. And like, that's what I live for. I, I live to see them, you know, leave the residential program like happier and healthier than they've ever been. Yeah. And, you know, obviously they're still going to struggle with their trauma and their mental illness and that kind of stuff, but at least they have the skills, you know? Yeah. So what, um, age group of youth do you serve at Summit Oaks? Um, the youngest that we have right now is 11 and I think the oldest is 16, but so it's kind of a, the, 
adolescent range. A lot of hormones. <laughs> yup. It sure sounds like it. Yup. Okay. Interesting. You know, the reason I ask is because we primarily serve youth and young adults um, with Lust and Found. And so we serve, you know, kind of 10 to 34-ish mm-hmm. um, age range and then also their support systems. And so- yeah, absolutely. Um, the connection, I guess I'm trying to make here is like, yeah. how can we, you know, work together to infiltrate the system to make it better and improve, um, and also, you know, kind of envelope our youth in our communities yeah, to, you know, do better because they're yeah. in the residential treatment program, but then we can also offer services and resources too. I think, you know, reaching out to those, um, residential programs saying, Hey, we're a resource for people. Um, who, when they're leaving the program, like, um, cause every residential youth goes through aftercare procedures and like, um, they're not, they don't leave our system and then just, you know, never have a resource ever again. Yeah. They have to have resources and help when they leave because that's what they've been taught is that, like, these are the resources that'll help you. You have the skills, but you also need those resources. Um, and a lot of people forget the resources or they don't know that they're available, mm-hmm. which, you know, that, I mean, I think we're going to talk about that later, but that's something that like people need to know is that resources are out there that can help you. Yeah. And that not every resource is, you know, like my experience might be different than somebody else's. And so, you know, like, what I use in my resources that I've used doesn't necessarily mean that it'll hundred percent help you, but at least yeah. it's a, it's a, gu- a guide, you know, something like, Oh, I'll try this. And then, you know, if you use those resources, at least they'll point you in the right direction. If it, this doesn't work for you, then you can try a B, C and D. Definitely. Yeah. Cool. Well, we'll definitely circle back to the resources yes. and programs and offers of support. But um, I definitely think that we will follow up with um, other residential treatment programs and some Oaks and try to see, you know, what op- opportunities for partnership can um, we, can we do together? So yeah, it'd be um, awesome. yeah, I think that would be a really, really great opportunity. Um, so kind of transitioning here, in this podcast series, um, we are focusing on the seven strategies of suicide prevention uh, mm-hmm. that the CDC uses. Um, and then also the goal of this podcast is kind of encompassing three um, kind of ideas. Um, so that's increasing awareness of mental health challenges around us, empowering people to share their stories, and then promoting resources that help people through their darkest times. So... I just kind of want to ask you about those three um, kind of goals that we have for the show. Um, so what are some things that you do to, or have done or have seen throughout your experience and in your life um, that can increase awareness for others? Um, because obviously mental health is something that we all have. Mental illnesses, mental challenges are something that not all of us face, but we're all impacted or know someone yeah, who absolutely. faces something. So what are some ways that you have seen or have done to increase awareness? I mean, I think like my earliest that I can think about, like it doesn't matter how old you are, you can start you know, advocating at any age. And I remember my, <laughs> I didn't do it right, but... Um, when I was in high school, I was, you know, like I said, I was at the Abba House foster homes. And I remember a kid made the comment that Abba House kids are crazy. And I stood up and I remember I yelled at the kid <laughs> and I was like, they're not crazy. You have no idea what they go through on a daily basis. And like, I, I like went on this rant and then I remember the teacher just sitting back and be like, yeah, all right. Okay. Do this. Like, <laughs> and, um, you know, like speaking up you know, for different situations. Like if you, you know, you see someone struggling or you see someone that, you know, has a stigma about it, like educating, you know, you don't have to be, you know, have a degree or like work in some like awesome, amazing thing, like lost and found to be able to 
to advocate. You can you can just say, look, I noticed that you said this about this, and I just wanted to educate you a little bit. Like this is this is what it's really like, and this is this is how you can get help. And like it's normal, it's natural. Like it would if it wasn't natural, it wouldn't happen. You know, that's it's just how it works. It's biology. Like yeah. it just occurs. Like you know, obviously there's environmental factors, and then there's biological factors and genetic factors and you know you can go on to science about it but it's it's still natural that mm-hmm. you struggle with these things and so you know sharing and speaking out i think is a big way um and then you know if you can get involved in those systems get involved in those systems and advocate um just start by saying how can i help um and it you know it might be something small like doing a volunteer job or it might just be sharing your story like i do like it doesn't doesn't matter what it is but it makes a difference yeah Wow. Um, I guess this is a perfect segue here. Um, sharing your story. It's yes. something you obviously do very yes. regularly. It's something that you feel very comfortable with. Um, you know, through our 30 days, 30 stories campaign and this podcast, you know, we're trying to empower people to share their stories. Mm-hmm. Um, because ultimately I personally believe that storytelling is suicide prevention. It's kind yes. of a mantra that we use in our organization. And the whole reason that we kind of are successful in what we do is because all of us share our stories and we yeah. not only share our own, but we empower others, you know, mm-hmm. like we guide them on how to do it safely and we encourage them to grow and, you know, to heal through sharing their stories mm-hmm. and by also making sure that they're comfortable and have yeah. the resources to be able to do that. Mm-hmm in a way that works for them and doesn't put them in an unsafe space. So, um, is, is there some like good stories or good tactics that you've seen used, um, to empower stories, whether that's you sharing or, you know, maybe someone that inspired you to share your story or I guess, how did you come to this brave space of being able to say, I want to share my story? Um, it all started. So this is, goes back years. But when I was in the Abba house, I didn't have a foster home to go to. And at the time, they only had one foster home. And I had nowhere to go. I had no biological family that was either willing to take me or could take me. Um, so I was kind of stuck at Abbott House. And I remember we'd watched the movie Letters to God. <laughs> and me and other peer were like, we're going to write Letters to God. And so we wrote Letters to God. And I remember I talked to this peer later. And I was like, what did you ever write in yours? And she goes, you know what? I have no clue. She was like, it's probably something <laughs> stupid. And then, but mine, I wrote that I wanted a family. And then I, oh, wow. and I, you know, you turn it into the male area. And then I remember I just put God on it and I didn't think anything of it. And then like a year and a half later, I remember I was visiting the foster home for the first time. And um, Tyson Schultz is the director of the foster home, the Bridges program. And he walked in and he was like, have you looked at that book? And it was the dedication book. And I was like, no. Like, why would I look at the dedication book? You know, in my head, I'm a 12-year-old kid, like 14-year-old kid. Who cares? Like, you know, I don't care who dedicated money. I'm just in a cool house. Like, And he was like, look at that book. And I remember I looked at the book and on the first pages was my letter to God. And then they wow. told me that what happened is that somebody, it came across um, Virginia Lambert's desk and she gave it to Eric Clues, who then, you know, used it. They used it and to, to share why they should open more homes like it was and oh, uh, it like generated tons of money and it was incredible and I don't talk about that a lot because it's very like that was a very emotional part of my life like if I was very vulnerable in that moment but and it, it's it's weird to think that something so small and so vulnerable could make such a big difference but and then that's when and 
it kind of started. I remember they asked me to read it and they would record my voice so that they had it for like slides. And then the, the, my oh. voice would be reading the letter yeah. and have more of an impact. And then I remember my first time ever speaking was at a church. Um, and I don't remember where, but I remember that we went to this church and I, you know, shared a little bit of my story, answered a couple of questions and that was it. And then that was when I was like, I can do this. Like, and at that one, I didn't really share a whole lot of my story. Um, and you can share your story however you feel comfortable. I had, you know, somebody that I went to that the peer conference with actually wrote down everything about her life and then crossed out the stuff she didn't want to share. Like, you know, she answered in as much detail, because like, we had questions we were supposed to answer, and she answered okay. as much detail with as much description as possible, and then she just crossed out, like, this part I'm wow. not really comfortable sharing, and crossed it out. And it was perfect, and she had and a wonderful, amazing story to share, and it was incredible to hear that, and, you know, she was comfortable and she felt safe. And, you know, for me, I take weeks to prepare. <laughs> I, you know, when I know that I'm sharing in front of an audience, I, I read the questions and I like, you know, the whole car right up here, you, I was talking to myself, <laughs> I was preparing what I would say <laughs> and I just, I prepare, you know, and then that makes me feel more comfortable mm -hmm. and, um, helps me know, like, you know, I can talk and then I'll talk for like hours to myself and then I'll be like, that doesn't sound quite right. And like, I don't know where I'm going now, but like that kind of stuff, but it's, it's incredible. And sharing your story has a healing component to it too. Like, um, not just for yourself, but for others. Like I remember I shared at a, a college one time for one of my professors and a kid came up to me and was like, Hey, I was in treatment too. And I remember it was incredible to like, he was like, I'm, I'm so glad that you could share your story. Like it made me feel less alone, that kind of stuff. And like, I was like, man, like, that's so cool. Like that I'm touching these lives. And then, um, another, I got feedback one time from the same professor and somebody was like, I've always contemplated being a foster parent, but now I want to be one. And it was like, I was like, man, I'm making this difference. And it's so small, but it's incredible. Like, yeah. and that's so healing for me, like knowing that I'm helping other people kind of understand more mm -hmm. and, you know, helping, you know, people were like, I never thought that this, the weird kid at school probably was being abused. But now that I hear her, her story, like maybe that's what was going on. Something was going on in her life. Mm -hmm. And, you know, like that's, it's incredible that they can now identify like when somebody's going through something and like being able to help them a little bit better. Yeah. That Just, lived experience kind of gives you a lens to view yeah. other behaviors and attitudes through, you know, like, yeah, I do the same thing, honestly. So that's really cool. Yes. Um, Kind of moving us into that third goal of both the 30 days, 30 stories campaign mm -hmm. and the podcast um, is providing people with resources and support systems. So that way we can build more resilient communities and we can reach the most people that we possibly can in order to improve mental health for everyone in our communities. Mm -hmm. So what are some resources and supports like structures and systems that you've relied on, but also that you've referred to like for other people that you work with, I just, ultimately, we want to envelope and arm everyone we possibly can yeah, with absolutely. all of the resources. So hearing from your lived experience, the things that you have found that works, mm -hmm. what would that be? Um, so the big thing that I've done, um, I've gone to therapy since I was 11 years old. And uh, even when I didn't necessarily need to go, like my mental health was, you know, my mental illnesses weren't really acting up and I was doing okay. Like I still went mm -hmm. like, it was nice to have at least somebody to vent to about, you know, the inconveniences of life. <laughs> and, um, so I've always gone to therapy. Um, another resource, sorry. <laughs> <It's okay. laughs> another resource that I've used 
is medication. Um, I didn't take medications actually when I am and left the foster care system, I stopped taking my medications. Mm. And then, um, in August last year, I started taking medications again. Um, I kind of came to like a low point in my life and I was like, I, you know, I need more help than what therapy is providing. And so I started taking medications again. And then in December, um, I had an episode, um, where I, I wanted to hurt myself and hurt other people. And I was really struggling. And I remember I called my dad and my dad called my mom freaking out. And my mom called me and was like, what's going on? Like, are you okay? Like your dad has no idea what you just said to him, but he's on his way. And I remember I had locked myself in the garage because the person I wanted to hurt was in my house. And I was like really frustrated and upset. And my dad came and then I had him help me kind of do what I needed to do at the house. And then, um, I sat in the corner and I remember I was crying and I said to my dad, I said, do you think I need more help than what I'm, what I'm getting right now? And he looked at me and he said, yes, because I've never seen you like this. It's it's been a long time and this is like the worst it's ever been. And I was like, okay. And I remember I called Mitchell clinic actually, that's where I first went and they were like, well, we can't get you in right now. Um, there's no, but nobody has available openings, but try DCI, which is Dakota counseling Institute in Mitchell. And I was not a client of them, but I called them anyway. And it was incredible. I remember I talked to the first lady and she was like, how can I help you? you need to schedule an appointment. And then I just kind of was like, I need to, I want to hurt myself. I don't hurt other people. Like I need help. I don't know what to do. And she was like, okay, hold on a second. And I remember hearing the panic in her voice. Like she was like, I don't know what to do. And so then she went and talked to other people and came back on the phone and she's like, okay, I'm gonna have somebody to talk to. And it was the director. And he talked me through things. And then he kind of got me into a little more rational position where I could think a little bit clearer. And he yeah. said, look, this is what you need to do. You need to call Vera Behavioral. And so I called them and then he said, call me back if they can't get you in. So I called the Vera Behavioral, was able to get into them. And I called him back and I was like, I'm, I'm good. I'm going to Vera Behavioral. And he felt better about the situation. Um, I went to them for five days and I was actually then that I was diagnosed with borderline personality disorder. And um, I've had it most of my life and I've wow. never been diagnosed until December of last year. Wow. And it was an incredibly powerful moment for me to be able to put words to whatever was going on. Because I remember for years, I'd be like, this is what's going on in my life. And they'd be like, oh, it's just depression or, oh, it's just anxiety. And I remember I, I, it always bothered me. I was like, I have an undiagnosed mood disorder. That's what I had as a kid is what it was diagnosed on, undiagnosed mood disorder. Because mm-hmm. when I was a kid, you couldn't diagnose like those kind of things. Yeah. And um, so when I finally had a phrase for what was going on with my life and I could research and find the proper skills and like help myself as much as possible, it was incredible. And it changed my life immensely. Um, and so all of those resources helped me a lot, but also my support system. Um, I wouldn't, have known to, I wouldn't have, you know, I would have continued on my path if I hadn't been able to call my dad and say, look, dad, I need you right now. And I I need help. Like, I don't know what to do. And my friends and my family have always been surrounding me and helping me through my darkest moments. And it's incredible, you know, and, you know, we talked about how I'm pregnant and, you know, that's supposed to be like a magic cure for things, but it's not like, <laughs> you know, you can have everything you want in life and you still struggle. Yeah, and uh, so, and that's okay. And so I had people in my life for like, it's, it's okay. And that's such a huge part, having that support system, you know, you can have yeah. as much resources as possible, but if you don't have anybody backing you up, then, you know, I, I don't know where you're going to go. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Wow. I love the piece that you just 
mentioned, you know, the support system, because that's something that we are so good at in our organization is building the resilient communities, excuse you, um, building resilient communities and fostering support systems for Mm -hmm. people. And ultimately that's a big part of these systems that are in place in the world today that is lacking is helping people be provided with a support system and helping to build that for people. Yeah, absolutely. Um, So the fact that you found that through your family, through your friends, and now we're offering that to others through your work, I think is so powerful. It just, I mean, that's the impact that we're trying to make because when it comes to mental illness, like, and you feel so dark, so alone, so isolated, Mm -hmm. all you want is to be loved and to have someone to like tell you it's going to be okay. Yes. And to understand and be able to, you know, not judge you. Mm -hmm. You know, I had, I put myself on this high pedestal and I felt Mm -hmm. like I couldn't struggle and I wasn't allowed to struggle because everyone in my life would be disappointed in me. And ultimately when I had my worst moments, instead of being angry, disappointed with me, they all surrounded me. You know, even my boss at work, because I was working at the time in the foster homes and I had to leave work early to go to a very behavioral And I remember the boss sat me down and she was like, look, here's the deal. What happened wasn't great, but I'm glad that you got help that you needed. And let me know if you ever need anything because it can't get this bad again. And we want, we don't want you to get this bad again. And I said, okay. And so then instead of like firing me for it, she sat me down and she said, let me know how I can help you. And it was incredible that I had those resources, even with my work, you know, they'll understand, you know, it's, it's a matter of like putting those things into words. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you really have to think about like, uh, so often people can't put language around how yes. they're feeling. And that's why support systems are so critical mm-hmm. because it, it, you do feel that isolation. But mm-hmm. yeah, anyway, so we've talked support systems, we've talked resources, we've talked, you know, a ton of stuff. From your perspective, I'm just curious, we, we like asking people, if you could wave a magic wand and all resources and everything that you have already shared today, mm-hmm. not factoring that in, but you could just wave a magic wand, have a million dollars or however much money and unlimited resources, what would you change about the foster care system, about the mental health systems? How would you make it so everyone was feeling safe, feeling comfortable, and had the resources that they needed? I, th- I think my biggest one would be stigma. I'd want to end that stigma because the stigma ultimately is like the getter. Like, you know, if you have that stigma, you're not getting the help you need. Mm-hmm. And like, there's a lot of resources out there and people don't use those resources because they have that stigma. And not only that, like I'd want I want to make it an equal playing field for the foster care system, you know, depending on what foster home you're in, you know, that's where I'd want you, you know, you still have equal opportunities. Excuse me, I'm sorry. It's okay. Um, and I think, I got to think of how I want to word this. Like, um, Easier access, Mm -hmm. I think, because I think about, like, people in my life who don't have, like, um, mental, mental health and, um, or mental health. They have mental health. They don't have health insurance or, like, access. Thank you. Um, They don't have access to, um, um the help that they need, mm-hmm. you know, and that's the kind of stuff that like, 
I'd want easier access because, you know, you think about COVID, for example, impacted so many lives and suicide rates increased, depression, anxiety, mental illness increased. Like it was terrible, Mm -hmm. you know, and, you know, life is getting back to normal, so to speak. But is it really normal? Like I think about the McDonald's down the street from where I live and they're so understaffed. They only have one drive through open and it takes 30 minutes to get through the drive through. Like. And so there's still people without jobs and, you know, there's so many reasons for that. And mental illness is a huge part of that. Sure. Sure. And, you know, having easier access, you know, to getting that help that you need, um, whether it's more affordable or it's just closer to you, whatever it is, it just, you know, that's something that's so, so, so important. Mm -hmm. Um, and so my magic wand would, (laughs) would definitely make easier access. Cause I feel like that's, cause a lot of people go undiagnosed or misdiagnosed. You know, in my case, I was misdiagnosed. I was never an undiagnosed with it. And it, having that diagnosis helped me a million and ten. And, you know, some people don't want the name to whatever's going on, but I think it's so powerful to be able to, you know, it feels so huge and so big what you're going through. And it feels like it's something you can't conquer. And so then when you're able to put a name to whatever's going on and you're able to research and use those skills and use those resources that you're learning, like, you know, you can fight your demons, I guess. Yeah. And it, so, so much more ease than you would without that name. Yeah. Well, and then you can find the appropriate support that you yes. need too, because with a misdiagnosis or an undiagnosed illness, you know, like you don't know where to turn. You don't know what medications to take or what's going to cause harm or who to turn to in times of need, you know, yep. like with a diagnosis. Yes. diagnosis you can you know have a little bit of absolutely. closure a little bit of clarity absolutely yeah i know that i when i found out i was diagnosed with um, borderline personality disorder i my first day back from the hospital my mom and i sat down and were researching it and we found a workbook and my mom bought it for me and she goes consider an early birthday present that's funny <laughs> and so then she bought me she bought me this workbook that i've been working on and it's helped me incredibly and i'm like yeah. whoa had no idea that was part of BPD and like learned so much stuff and like have been able to be more aware of things, you know? Yeah. That's really interesting. Um, this might be too personal, but you seem to be very open. Um, so I'm going to ask what does borderline personality disorder look like or manifest? How does that manifest for you? Um, I'm not sure all of our listeners know what that looks like or what that feels Um, like. So for me, it's a lot of highs and lows. Um, my highs, I'm sure people have heard the phrase manic, um, and that's exactly what it's like for me. Like, I'm on top of the world. I can conquer anything. It's, you know, I'm, nothing can hurt me. I'm okay. Like, and it's to the point that, like, I fool myself into believing it, and I fool others into believing that I'm okay. Mm. And, um, uh, Whereas my lows, they're extremely low. Like it's, it's not just like an average day. I'm either super high or I'm super low and, you know, trying to, in those lows, I'm wanting to hurt myself, wanting to hurt others. I can barely have to get bed, barely eat, that kind of stuff. Um, and trying to get to like a more stable position in life. Um, and it's chaos in my brain, I guess. There's so many, um, with like voices screaming at me and like telling me different things and like it's all my subconscious you know but it's fractured essentially is what it feels like 
um, hundreds of voices. And I remember the meds I started taking actually cleared my mind for the first time in years. And it was incredible feeling to have like a clear mind where I could think clearly. And I wasn't chaos, you know, on a daily basis and constant anxiety and like feeling like I'm crazy, you know, and it was incredible to finally take medications that stabilize my mind a little bit. Mm -hmm. And so that I could be more stable and I could use my wise mind better. Um, and then like, I have anger outbursts a lot, like not a lot. They're, they're more infrequent, but they happen and they're very violent. Um, like my December was the last time that I was violent with anybody. Um, and I tried to go after somebody twice and like try and hurt them. And it's like, not, not the greatest situation. And I remember they threatened to call the police and I was like, dude, I'm not scared. Like, <laughs> not great. <laughs> like I'm, I'm very ballsy. <laughs> <laughs> when I'm when I get to that point and it's not it's not good and it you know it I struggle a lot um with self-identity and kind of understanding who I am as a person and um being able to feel comfortable in my own skin Mm -hmm. I guess and feeling comfortable in my life and um you know my my kind of my mind and my environment kind of reflect each other. If my, I'm really struggling, then my environment's kind of really messy. And I know like, you know, we're talking about college students and like we're at a college campus right now. And like when I was in college, like my, all of my energy went into school and work and I, like I barely got through those things. And so then when I came home at the end of the night or on my days off, I slept, I couldn't, I had to recharge. And so my house was trashed. I remember when I left that apartment this is embarrassing, but I, you know, I had flies and like trash. And I remember I was hauling trash bag after trash bag out of that, that apartment. And it was embarrassing. Like I was like, but when I thought about it, I was like, that's my mental illness, you know? And so many people struggle with that. Like, you know, you talk about what happens in your mind, but you don't talk about the environment around you. And a lot yeah. of people struggle with like just those basic skills, like cooking, cleaning, making yourself clean, that kind of stuff. Like those things are so, so hard. And so then people look at people with mental illness and they're like, they're gross because they can't manage to get in the shower or clean up their trash or like make a meal for themselves, you know, that kind of stuff. And it's just, it's hard. Yeah. Um, where did you go to school? What'd you study? Mitch, I went to Mitchell technical, what's college now. Um, it was Mitchell technical Institute when I went, but it's college now for whatever reason, <laughs> okay, but they, I studied human services. Okay. That's right. Um, that's yep. right. You did tell me that earlier. Mm-hmm. Yep. Great. It was, um, yep. I, I don't know. I kind of, I wanted a field that would help me. I had the experience with advocating, but I wanted mm-hmm. the educational experience as well. Kind of helped me understand things a little bit better. Yeah, definitely. Okay. Again, you're like nailing these segues because I'm thinking through like education is a lot of the work that we do and advocacy, you know, education through advocacy is really important. So if there's, and we'll ask you this question later for the 30 days, 30 stories campaign too, but if there's one thing that you wish that everyone knew about mental health, about suicidal ideation, about self-harm, about BPD, like whatever you kind of want to make this about, Mm -hmm. what would that one piece of advice be for everyone. I think it's okay to not be okay. Um, and it's okay that like, you know, like we're talking about me being pregnant and, you know, I have an amazing fiance and I still struggle. You know, I have everything that I've ever wanted in life going for me right now. And I still have a hard time getting out of bed some days or cleaning my house or like going to work, you know, that kind of stuff. Like those are really hard for me still. 
And, you know, I remember sitting one time and I was like, why am I still struggling? Like I'm having, everything is wonderful. You know, I'm going to have a child, a little boy soon, like that kind of stuff. And like, I, it's incredible and hard and I, you know, it's okay to not be okay. And I remember I have to remind myself of that. Like, it's okay that you're not okay right now. Yeah. That kind of thing. Definitely. Well, thanks so much for sharing. Yes. Um, I think we're about out of time. <laughs> um, so is there anything like last minute that you want to share that or expected to share that we haven't asked you so far today or just like a final thought about mental health and um, the systems that are in place in our world? Um, just that I hope that those who are stuck in the stigma world um, of mental illness, whether it's religiously or culturally or just environmentally, like I, I really hope that this reaches them and like that they know that like despite stigma, they can get the help that they need if, yeah. you know, the resources around them aren't helping. Because I know a lot of there's religions out there, cultures, I believe this is the way you should handle that stuff. And then if you don't, then handle it that way, then, you know, is it are you really okay or really doing things the way you should? And so I really hope that they know that they can have the resources out there and get the help and that they'll be culturally and religiously sensitive too. It's not going to just be like go against your culture or go against your religion. Uh -huh. If you get that help, they're going to be so sensitive to what, what your experiences are and how you're raised, you know? Yeah. That was beautifully said. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, that does it. Um, thank you so much, Cherokee. I really appreciate you taking the time to share your yes. story and to join us in conversation. I hope everyone listening enjoyed the conversation as well. Um, I do just want to plug your 30 Days, 30 Stories um, campaign that we have going on. You are one of our storytellers. Yes. So listeners, be on the lookout for Cherokee's story later this month. Um, Every day of September, we will have a story um, from a South Dakotan with lived experience. Um, and we are sharing their stories of resilience and overcoming. And Cherokee is just one of the many beautiful stories. So thank you so much. And stay tuned for a book. Ooh. <laughs> it's supposed to be two weeks from now. It should be published. It's my poems. Oh, my gosh. Well, we're definitely going to look at that. It's called Picking Up the Pieces. So I love that. In two weeks, start looking. <laughs> Great. Okay. Well, we will pick up some copies. <laughs> awesome. Thank you so much, Cherokee. Absolutely. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening. Remember to subscribe, rate, and review Great Minds wherever you listen to your podcasts. For more information about Lost and Found, go to resilienttoday.org. That's R-E-S-I-L-I-E-N-T-T-O-D-A-Y.org. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, and YouTube at Resilient Today. Until next time, do more and stay well.